The following audio is from the King's Chapel. You can find out more about our church at thekingschapel.org. Well, good morning once again, everyone. Welcome to the King's Chapel. As you just saw from that little video there, we're beginning a new series this uh, weekend called One Another that we'll be in for the next several weeks. And if you didn't get a chance, you could pick up an outline for the sermon today by the doors. And I'd also encourage you, if you'd like to take communion today, that we have communion elements at the back. We'll be taking communion at the end of the sermon today. So you can pick those up at the back if you didn't get a chance to. Now is is the time. Uh, and, And I just want to kind of start with this idea. Uh, it's a pretty divided time we live in, isn't it? Isn't it? Right? And I just found it so refreshing this week that over these last couple of years, for maybe the first time in a long time, there was just this collective unity, everyone getting on the same page, collectively disappointed in the new name of the Washington football team. <laughs> Can I get an amen? I mean, honestly, thank you. Uh, but we need unity, and we'll, we'll talk about that over the next couple weeks. Uh, as we get into this, a, a few years ago, I was in college. Actually, now it seems like a long time ago. And I was in a long-term relationship at the time. If you can believe it, I had a girlfriend. And uh, toward the beginning of my senior year, at the end of that summer, I was asked to and decided to help her uh, move to her new house down in South Carolina for her final uh, year of college. And so I loaded up the car. I helped her move all her stuff down there. The plan was that we'd go to South Carolina. We'd help her move into school for the semester. And then I would fly home separately. And it just happened to be on my birthday. Okay. So what better way to spend my birthday than to go down to see uh, smiling faces and beautiful places and, and be with my, my dear friend at the time. Uh, so everything goes smoothly. We have a good time. She's moved in. And just because we're a uh, Poor college students, she begins to drive me to that airport that's over an hour outside of the town because it's cheaper to fly out of there. Uh, Maybe you remember how it goes. And as we're driving, even though we've had uh, a good time together, as we're driving, there's this tension in the car. And there's this kind of silence in the car. And I don't understand what's going on necessarily, but things are weird. Anyone ever been in one of those kinds of situations? Yeah, like every day? Uh, No, for me, this was unusual. And I knew something was up. And so we began to, to talk about it, like, hey, what's, what's going on here? And so she tells me that uh, she had been thinking about it a lot and praying about it a lot, <laughs> which is never a good sign, and, uh, <laughs> and tells me that basically, to make a long story short, she thinks it's time for us to break up. And uh, so I, I look at her, and, and my response is, don't do this to me. Not on my birthday. <laughs> and, and the story is sad enough. In, in that she, she then drops me at the airport and I'm distraught. I'm walking through the airport towards security, uh, shuffling along with that sad music from Charlie Brown playing in my head. And uh, maybe you've heard this story before, but I then get to the TSA counter and I just want to go home. I just want to just be alone, be quiet. No one talk to me. And so I reach into my pocket to pull out my ID to get through security. And of course, what do I not have in my pocket? My, my ID. Here's the crazy thing. Had my wallet, had everything, but not my identification. If you don't have a driver's license, if you don't have a passport, you, you can't fly. And, and so I'm panicking. I'm looking through my bags. I'm turning everything inside out. And uh, it's just not there. And so there I am on my birthday, stuck behind enemy lines, unable to fly home. And, and so what did I do? Um, I begged her to take me back, right? <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't do that. I went to the TSA agent, and I began to beg him to let me through. I mean, why wouldn't he? Here's this guy with a one-way ticket and no ID heading to D.C. Why wouldn't he let me on the plane? (laughs) 
And so I, I pull out everything I can from my pockets. I'm pulling out student IDs from high school. I don't know why I had those. Uh, I, I'm pulling out my debit card. I, I even have this, this thing I pulled out and I brought it with me today. It's a soccer player card. <laughs> and it has my testimony on the back in Spanish. So it was... <laughs> I think that's what convinced him. So anyway... <laughs> He, he lets me through, and thank God I got on that flight, and I curled into a ball and uh, made it home to celebrate the rest of my birthday by myself. <laughs> but it made me think of this question, and whenever I consider that story, it made me think of this. How do we in life prove who we are? And if we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, what, what's the evidence of that? If someone were to say, you say you're a Christian, prove it. Lay something on the table. Prove it to me that you are actually a follower of Jesus. What would be your sign? What would you, what would you use to demonstrate that you are his? What would be the evidence that backs up that claim, especially to a watching world, that you belong to Jesus? And that's what we're going to consider this morning. In each era, there's been different signs that people have used to show that they're Christians. Maybe they, they wore a cross around their neck. Maybe they cut their hair into a weird bowl cut with a bald spot in the back. Uh, I don't know, but there were all kinds of things. What would Jesus do? Bracelets, Tim Tebow jerseys, you name it. There are ways to show that you're a Christian, but all those things that I just described are very fleeting, very superficial, very uh, culturally contextual, and there is something better, believe it or not. There's something better. Francis Schaeffer says it this way. He said, there is a mark that has not been thought up just as a matter of expediency for use on some special occasion or in some specific era. It is a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church till Jesus comes back. He's saying there is something that we can all display that, that God intended for us to display that will show that we are believers forever. And if you turn to John chapter 13, we're going to see what that is. John chapter 13. At the close of Jesus' ministry, we've, we've been through about 13 chapters in, in the book of John so far, if, you, if you've read through it. And, and what happens in those first 13 chapters is essentially the ministry of Jesus. And about halfway through that book, all of a sudden it becomes the last week of Jesus' life and ministry. And here he's gathered his close friends, the disciples together for a meal, for a last supper in Jerusalem in an upper room. He's washed their feet. He gathers them together. And just like there was tension in that car, much more so in that room, in that upper room, there is a sense of weight and expectation because Jesus knows that his time has come, that he is going to be going to the cross very shortly. And so there's a seriousness, there's, there's a weight to his words, and the disciples are, are hanging on every word, and, and John is, is noting this all. And here, in this setting, here is when Jesus makes clear what will be the sign to the world that you are his. John 13, 31, uh, excuse me, 34 to 35, it says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's as if Jesus turns to the watching world and he gives the world permission to judge whether or not you are a Christian, whether or not you actually belong to Jesus, not on the basis of your nationality, not on the basis of your political affiliation or your prosperity or your public piety, none of that. He gives the world permission to judge the genuineness of your faith based on the way you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Have you ever thought about that? In other words, by the way you love each other, 
in the church, in community, is how the world will know that you love Jesus. It's not even by, by loving outsiders or unbelievers. He doesn't say, by the way you love unbelievers, that's how the world will know. No, he says, by the way you love each other. And out of that, that love for each other flows this love towards the world. It flows out of this love that is cultivated and matured in community. Romans 12, 9 instructs us to let our love be genuine. So let me ask you again, what is your life proving to the world about your faith? What is the watching world seeing in you? Do they see genuine love? Do they see the way that you care about and, and love others in the faith? Is this what we are known for? Or are we simply known for what we are against? Love one another. Depending on which translation of scripture you, you use, if it's in English, it will have this phrase about 15 times, which means it's a pretty big deal. It's repeated by Jesus, John, Peter, Paul, and it happens a number of times in Scripture. Love one another. So, so over the next five weeks, we're going to be talking about what this looks like practically and how this is expressed in community. And we're going to be talking about the messiness of being in, in relationship with other human beings. We'll talk about encouraging and admonishing one another. We'll, we'll talk about serving one another, living in harmony with one another, which is not easy, is it? And so if we look at scripture and we, we look for that phrase, one another, you'll see it appear uh, about 59 times in scripture. And so I just want you to interact with me a little bit right now. I, I've given you a few, but what are some of the one another statements in scripture? Here in the room, this is not rhetorical. You get to shout them out if you're bold enough. What are some of the one another's in scripture? Serve one another. Good. Bear with one another. That's not easy. Support one another. Yeah, bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Be kind one to another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another. That's right. What else? Outdo one another in showing honor. Admonish one another. Be devoted to one another. Confess your sins to one another. How often do you do that? Pray for one another. Stop passing judgment on each other. Do not slander one another. Don't grumble against one another. Live in harmony one with another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. We'll spend a week on that one. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but this is, this is lofty, isn't it? This is a, a high calling. Today we live in such an independent culture and, and I love the, the United States of America. I love living here, but it is so independent. Everything's about my personal freedom, my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's a real thing and that's a, a good thing. But we live in this culture in which there's the sense in which if I take care of this vertical relationship with God, then I'm good. That's all I need to focus on. That's all I need to worry about and concern myself with. But what the Bible tells us is that that is not true. The Bible tells us that you will not thrive or fulfill your purpose in this vertical relationship with God unless you're connected deeply through horizontal relationships with his body, with other believers, with the church, and thinking that we can thrive spiritually while we're disconnected from other believers on our own. It's just, it's wrong. It's wrong. It's not true. There is one major prerequisite to this challenge of loving one another. You can't do it alone. You cannot love one another alone. Some of you introverts are thinking, if only you could, that would be wonderful. But it is impossible to live out these one another's by yourself in isolation. You cannot do it. 
And I know that that may seem obvious. A lot of this is going to seem kind of elementary, but over the last couple of years, as wave after wave of, of this virus has come through, we've become simultaneously the most electronically connected and yet relationally isolated generation probably in history. And, and I can tell you that there's good reasons for that. There, there's good reasons to take precautions. There's been good reasons to do things differently. But the result of being in prolonged isolation, of not being intentionally connected to other people, has actually been devastating in a number of ways. And you can look at the stats on this, and they're pretty alarming. We see that suicide rates are up, alcoholism is up, uh, domestic abuse is up as people have been forced into close quarters living together with their spouses, believe it or not, you know? Anxiety is up, depression is up, but this isn't new. This isn't new information that this would be the result of prolonged isolation for decades. You can look at studies that have shown that cardiovascular disease is far worse for people that live on their own than for those that live among other people. It is healthier just to be in a relationship with other people than, than to live a healthy, quote-unquote, lifestyle by yourself. And this is serious because we are not designed for this. We are not designed to live in isolation. In Genesis 1, as God looks at what he's just created, this perfect, sinless environment of Eden, he looks upon everything that he's made and he says that it is what? Good. Very good. And then he makes Adam and he sees Adam alone. Uh, among the animals, in this wonderful place, but before sin has even entered into the equation, before there's sin on the scene, God looks upon Adam in his loneliness, he looks upon Adam in his isolation by himself, and he says it is what? Not good. Not good. Can, can you just think of that? Before sin is even in the picture, it is not good that Adam is alone. It's as if we're created not just with a God-shaped void in us, but with a human-shaped void we are designed for and made for relationships. And, and I just want to, to ask you to consider this morning, think about it in your own life. What is a, a period in your, in your life in which you were profoundly isolated? Think about it for just a moment. And how did that go for you? Spiritually. Emotionally. I think if, if we're honest with ourselves, those seasons of isolation are some of the worst of our lives, and those seasons of vibrant community are the best. It makes all the difference in the world. We are made to be part of something bigger than ourselves. Ephesians 2.19 says that when we're in Christ, he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are called then not just to believe something, but to belong to something. And God's chosen instrument for belonging, God's chosen instrument for this is the church. The church. Now, I, the church is not a building. It's not about that. If this building disappeared tomorrow, the church would continue to exist. In fact, the, the Greek word in scripture that most often appears for the church is this ekklesia, which is simply a gathering, the gathering of believers. But scripture tells us that you are members of God's very own family, citizens of God's country, and you belong in God's household with every other Christian. And so what I'm getting at is this. The Bible describes us as put together, joined together, built together, members together, heirs together, fitted together, and held together. Your relationship with God is personal. It is. But God never intended it to be private. It's not just for you. You're part of a family. 
Some of you don't really know what it's like to be part of a healthy family, but, but being part of a healthy family is to be connected, to be involved in each other's lives for mutual building up so that we are better together than on ourselves. We are created for community. We are fashioned for fellowship and formed for family, and none of us can fulfill God's purposes for our lives by ourselves. Romans 12.5 says this. It says, So in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We are called not just to believe, but to belong. And so I want to talk about what it means to be a member in Scripture. What is a member? First, a member is a vital part of a body. That's how Paul uses it and how he means it in Romans. He talks about the church being not like a membership at Costco or a membership at a country club. No, it's so much more than that. Each part is like a vital body part. And each body part needs to be connected to a living body in order to thrive. Not only, not only that, but each part is needed by the body so that the body itself will thrive. They are mutually interdependent. You were each created for a specific role, but you will miss your purpose in life if you're not attached to a living, local body of believers, a church. 1 Corinthians 12, 14 says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. A, a number of years ago, and he'll probably tell you this story sometime, our youth pastor, Brendan, lost his toe during dinner. Um, he'll have to tell you. Like, it's, it's pretty crazy. So uh, our household was chaotic, and, and, and it all got sorted out. He went to the hospital. It got fixed up. But let me tell you, when that toe was disconnected from the body, it was pretty useless, wasn't it? Some of you are very disturbed by this story. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should have chosen a less real analogy. <laughs> but not only was the toe useless, but Brendan, who was a soccer player at the time, uh, was pretty useless himself. He was debilitated by that accident, and it took him a long time to heal up. Just like that toe needed a body, Brendan needed a toe. And so <laughs> the same is true of us. If we are disconnected and cut off from the lifeblood of a family of a local body, your spiritual life will eventually cease to exist. That's why when you see people in your lives or yourself become increasingly disconnected from frequent fellowship, that's when the doubts begin to come in. That's when, when, when the, the feelings of I'm not welcomed, I'm not loved, the lies begin to pour in. We need to stay deeply connected and, and rooted. And so sometimes you'll see as people uh, stop showing up, stop belonging, that they begin to become something altogether different than an intimate follower of Jesus. Being part of this body is not inconsequential. It's vital. We desperately need this. To be a member means to be a part of a body. To be a member also means to be a beloved part of a family. Whenever a child is born, he or she automatically becomes part of the universal family of human beings. But that child also needs to become part of a specific family unit to receive nurture and care and to grow up healthy. And the same is true spiritually. When you were born again, you automatically became part of God's family. But you need to now become part of a local expression of that family. 
And so the question for us this morning is simple. Does your level of, of involvement in your local church family, in community, demonstrate that you love and are committed to God's family? I, I've heard people say this phrase. They'll say something like, you know, I love Jesus. I just don't love the church. And if we really think about that, the church is described as, as the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. It's as if we say to Jesus, you know what? I love you. I just don't care for your bride. Husbands, think about how that would come across to you. Or I love you, but I just don't care for your body. 1 Peter 2.17 says that we are to love the family of believers. Love the brotherhood. And, and when we reject the body, when we dismiss the body, when, when we complain about the family, we are essentially complaining about something that, that Christ has given to us, that he delights in, that he would have us be a, a thriving part of. This church is known for community. It's known for being like a family. And I'm excited because I think God has even more in store for us as, as we learn to love each other more deeply and have an even bolder testimony to the world. I think that God has called us not to use the church, not to just show up and, and be at church, but to become the church, to be a family, members one of another, contributing to each other's growth and maturity. You cannot practice these one another's seated in rows. You just can't do it. It happens face to face. It happens in deep relationship. And so what I want to talk about as we come to a conclusion here is four reasons why we need our church family. We need it. Number one, a church family identifies you as a genuine believer. Jesus said this. I said it at the beginning in the introduction. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are disciples of Jesus. And so when we come together as a church, as a collection of people from different backgrounds, different races, different social statuses, that is a powerful witness to the world that something is different. That something is different as we love one another. You are not the body of Christ on your own. Together, not separated, we are his body. So number one, a church identifies you as a genuine believer. Number two, a church family moves you out of self-centered isolation. This is the, the, the training ground where we get to learn what it means to be a healthy family. And when we do that, it draws us out of, of our own self-centeredness. It's a lab for practicing unselfish, sympathetic love. 1 Corinthians 21 says this. It says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And so here in this environment of love, you can learn to, to care about the needs of others, to be concerned about the concerns of others, to pray for others. And only in regular contact with ordinary, imperfect believers can we learn how to really do this well. Mind your own business is not a Christian phrase. It's not something that we can, can really say to each other because we are called and commanded in Scripture to be involved in each other's lives for the sake of our growth. And sometimes that can be pretty uncomfortable, but it's worth it. It's worth it to have people in your life that are close enough to see your flaws, that you're honest with enough to see your needs. And, and so, I just want you to take a moment right now to think about, is there anyone in your life that you know has, has fallen out of fellowship, who has drifted into isolation? And I would ask you to consider, what if today is the day that God would have you reach out to them? That maybe today is the day that, that when you pull up their contact in your phone, you actually hit call. 
where you actually hit send on that text. We need each other. And, and this fellowship is vital. James 5.19 says this. It says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. A church family pulls you out of self-centered isolation. Number three, a church family helps you grow in spiritual maturity. Let me tell you, you will never grow physically strong by going to the gym and just watching other people work out. Not only that, it would be super creepy. <laughs> so don't do that. The same is true spiritually. You will not grow spiritually to maturity by simply attending worship services and being a passive spectator in the life of the church. Only full participation in the full life of a local church builds lasting spiritual muscle. So, so in our church, we talk about wanting you to move from these kinds of gatherings where we, we call this the front porch this environment where anyone can come in and be welcomed on some level. We want you to move into more intimacy, into those living room environments like men's ministry and women's ministry where you can deepen relationships, where it's still kind of formal, but you can get to know people better. But what we ultimately desire for you to do is to move from those environments to what I would call a kitchen table. A kitchen table, a place where you can gather face-to-face, -face, where you can laugh, where you can fight, where you can do all the things that happen in, in that center of the home where you can be real with each other and develop real deep relationships, where you can live out your family responsibilities, the one another's that we've been talking about. Do you have a kitchen table? Do you have people in your life that you are doing this with? Let me tell you, it is really easy to feel holy when there's no one else around to frustrate your schedule, when there's no one to interrupt, but it's in these kitchen table relationships where we see the flaws of others and we see our own as the mirror is held up to us. And growth and maturity happen in deep relationships. Healing happens in deep relationships where we can be honest, where we can learn from each other, where we can pray for each other. Lastly, number four, the body of Christ needs you. The body of Christ needs you. The body is rendered ineffective by members being disconnected. God has a unique role to play for you to play in his family. This is your ministry. I, I've talked to so many of you over the last couple of years who, especially in the early months of the pandemic, when it took you a while to get reconnected through Zoom or, or reconnected through service somehow, you were really struggling because you weren't able to, to live out your purpose, what God has made you to do. I was talking to a dear sister in the Lord just this week who was essentially saying that she was lost until the Lord began to give her opportunities to love and serve people through Airbnb and through other kind of remote, strange ways. And she's been just a tremendous blessing to, to believers and non-believers, a witness. As, this is uh, Trisha Craddock who uh, helps head up our, our TKC Cares ministry. Can you imagine people like Trisha and there are people all over this room fulfilling their purpose and their ministry isolated? It can't happen. It cannot happen. The body needs you. A few weeks ago, we talked about running well and finishing strong. And I'll tell you, if you're not running with anybody, you're not going to run long. There's an African proverb that says to run fast, run by yourself, and to run far, run with other people. And so do you have people that you are running with in your life? Do you have people that are giving you good guidance and counsel? Do you have wise people that you're, you're meeting with and interacting with on a regular basis? What we call that in our church is a small group. Do you have a small group that you're a part of? People that you meet with regularly. Maybe not every day or, or every single week, but every 
so often, regularly, do you get together with others for your mutual building up, for edification? You need people like this in your life that are spurring you on. You don't need 100, you don't need even 10, you just need a few. So do you have that in your life? In our setting, it's really easy to become part of a group. A group doesn't need to be big. It doesn't need to be 10 people. It doesn't need to be eight people. Actually, in a small group, when we're talking about this kind of serious building up of each other and maturity, the smaller, the better. All you really need is three. If it's two, that's not a group. That's a date. And, and while that's fine, um, that's not what we're about necessarily. What we're about here in, in this series is becoming part of a community, an intimate community. So are you part of a small group? Are you able to meet with people over Zoom or, or, or face-to-face? Are you able to, to be in an environment where you're pouring into others and they're pouring into you? If not, what I would strongly encourage you to do is to find one or to start one. And you're gonna see cards on your seats. Maybe you're sitting on them right now and didn't know they were there. But, but I'd ask you to look at that card and consider, what is my response going to be this morning? Am I going to take this seriously? And if, if I'm not, connected to community, maybe now as I, as I actually start my New Year's resolutions in February, maybe now is the time that I determine to join a group. And here's what I'd encourage you to do. Go find one friend and say, hey, you don't have to say hey at the beginning. You can say whatever you want, but just ask a friend to join you and see if they have a friend that would join you in discussing the sermons after Sunday or, or going through a book of the Bible together. Or just simply gathering to pray? Do you have someone in your life that you could ask? Maybe they have someone else too, and maybe that's the beginning of becoming part of the body more fully. When you belong to a small group of people, or when, when you belong to a group where you can be loved and that you can love others, you can begin to become you can run this race well. I'm going to close with one verse, and then we're going to respond to the Lord by, by hopefully taking a look at those cards and by taking communion together. Hebrews 10 says this, it says, let us consider how to spur one another on to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The church needs you. You need the church and the world needs you and the church.